Hey there traders, looking to take the guesswork out of trading and only 10 minutes a day? Then you need to head on over to AIStockTradingSystem.com right now, where you can get our five-step system to take the guesswork out of trading in only 10 minutes per day. And the only place to get that is at AIStockTradingSystem.com. That's AIStockTradingSystem.com. One of the nice things about ETFs is they don't have capital gains tax implications. So my decisions as a manager don't become capital gains in the hands of the investors. The ETFs can use this custom create redeem function to get rid of the capital gains. So it's not like a mutual fund or a managed account or a hedge fund where you're getting a big tax whack every single year. You, you basically, your tax is where you buy it and where you sell it. And it's the, the gain in between. This is the How to Trade Stocks Options podcast brought to you by 10MinuteStockTrader.com where we cover finance, stocks, options, entrepreneurship, education, and money. And here's your host, voted one of the top 100 people in finance, Christopher Yule. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to today's How to Trade Stocks Options podcast. Today, we have a special lesson for you. I'm putting it here on the podcast because I really believe that this is going to provide you massive, massive value. And that's what I'm trying to do here. And hey, listen, if this podcast was useful to you at all, I really highly suggest that you go check out the full trading course at AIStockTradingSystem.com. That's AIStockTradingSystem.com. Hey, make sure you subscribe and hit the bell so you'll be notified every time we give you more tools, tips, and tricks to help you trade faster and trade smarter every single week. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to today's How to Trade Stocks and Options podcast. Today, we have a special guest online, Tobias Carlisle. He is the principal at the Acquirers Fund. And I think that we're going to have probably 117 questions to ask Tobias. Nothing too hard hitting, but I mean, you are in a world that I have no idea about. And of course, a curious mind can lead to lots of questions. So very excited to, uh, to get a chance to speak with you today, Tobias. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to it. So before we get too deep, um, let's tell people, so your website or people can learn more is acquirersfund.com. You also have a podcast called The Acquirers Podcast. And... Um, so, so, so tell me more, like, get, tell me about yourself. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me your story here, Tobias. So what I do, I, I run uh, an investment firm in Los Angeles called Acquirers Funds, and it's a deep value investment firm. So the Acquirers Funds, the firm has its own website, acquirersfundsplural.com. And you can see there that it describes my investment strategy. And so we, we execute that investment strategy in two vehicles. The first one is called the Acquirers Fund, which is a mid-cap, large-cap, domestic U.S. equity, long, short, deep value fund. And we also execute it in a small and micro fund, which is long only, also domestic U.S. equities. And that fund is called the Round Hill Acquirers Deep Value Fund. And the ticker for that is deep. So the ticker for the, the Acquirers Fund is ZIG, Z-I-G, and the ticker for the, uh, the small and micro fund is deep. So pretty easy to remember. Basically, um, I started out as a, an acquirer, as a mergers and acquisitions attorney in Australia. That's the accent. And in San Francisco doing tech M&A. And I went back to Australia, um, worked in-house as a general counsel of a listed public company, dealt with an activist uh, from inside, and then joined that activist subsequently when when the company got sold 
and I just learned the ropes of um, investing and I had already had a background in sort of um, you know, doing acquisitions at a sort of uh, as a lawyer and also as an in-house counsel. And so we worked in this activist fund and the way that we'd approach a problem is we'd find something that's undervalued on an assets basis, probably under earning. And we would approach the management, take a position, approach management and say, you know, you could buy back some stock or you could sell one of your businesses or we can just unpick a complicated corporate structure to make it a little bit more understandable to the investing um, public and that will like have a material impact on the return of your company and so we did that a few times then I started my own shop in 2010 and uh, moved to this moved back to the states my wife is uh, Los Angeles you know born and bred she's one of the one of the rare ones so I <laughs> have moved back here we got three kids and now I run and have been running uh, for a while now the firm and the two funds, which which follow this philosophy that I've written about in, a, in in several books, which we can discuss a little bit later, I'm sure. Okay, so give me an idea. What is deep value? Like, where is that a quantitative measure? Or is that subjective? It's not. Well, it's not necessarily either. You can execute a deep value strategy quantitatively or discretionarily. Um, the 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 juxtaposition is between so. And on one hand, you might have Warren Buffett, and I think now even Buffett, you would say, is deeper value than some of the guys who are practicing this very growthy form of value. You think about intrinsic value as a discounted figure uh, from what a business might be worth in the future. And so the sort of embedded in that idea is that the business will grow or change its valuation over time. And so what the Buffett growthier franchise guys are trying to do is to find a business or a company that's going to be materially bigger in the future and then buy it at a rate that will give them a return higher than the market, given that this is a better company than the market. Now, the research that I have done, so I wrote a book called Quantitative Value, came out in 2012, partnered with a guy who was doing his PhD at the Booth School of Business, which is the old Chicago School of Business. It's kind of regarded as the best quantitative school in the States. We took every bit of fundamental um, research that we could, and we looked at um, what you know, basically since the 1920s, and it was looking at like manufacturing businesses and whether you could work out whether they were credit worthy or whether they were in financial distress, whether they were manipulating their earnings, whether there was some fraud going on. And we look at you know, how do you know if it's a strong balance sheet? Like at what level is too? Do they have too much debt and they're going to have trouble servicing it? What's enough to kind of um, grow this business? What are the indicia of a really good business? Does it have very fat margins? Is it earning a lot on its invested capital? Are the earnings turning into cash flows? And so we, we, we wrote that book called Quantitative Value. In the process of doing that, I sort of noticed that there was this very, there's this very odd behavior of things that are deeply undervalued. So there's things that are at a wide discount to what you know, you and I might agree is their intrinsic value. Why are they trading at a big discount? Often it's because they're at the bottom of a, a business cycle and they're under earning, but they're also cheap. And if you buy them at that point, there's this very powerful uh, phenomenon in the market called mean reversion, where basically all of the other businesses in that industry kind of leave because it's so hard to make money. They either just become bankrupt or they just go to an adjacent industry where it's a bit easier to make money. And for a period of time, the ones who are left become super economic earners. 
and you can buy them at a discount. And so that's what I call deep value. It's basically a big discount to a depressed valuation where you think that there's going to be some mean reversion over time. And so you're trying to buy them at the bottom of the business cycle. So typically you're buying stuff like at the moment it might be banks and finan- uh, financials and uh, you know energy, anything that's really beaten up kind of comes into that screen. And then you pick through and try and find the ones that are going to survive and grow over time. And that's, that's deep value rather than franchise or quality value, which is trying to find a really good business that's going to grow over time. So are you buying the company or are you buying the stock of the company? Just so I'm clear. So the, we're buying the stock. Okay. And, but the reason it's called, this is the reason the whole branding is acquirers is because we think like an acquirer of the full business. And that's a very important uh, distinction to make. So when you think as an acquirer, you, you necessarily have to go in and look at, you know, so an acquirer, if you're just in, if you think of the market as just the equities that are floating around and you're just buying the equity, you might be missing out on some of the other liabilities that the company carries. So you might not be accounting for the debt that it has. You might not be looking at the preference shares. You might not be looking at the, um, the minority interests that are in there. So we treat all of those things as debt or debt-like securities, that liabilities that an acquirer of the business in its entirety would have to bear and then we look at that against what this business earns um, before it sort of redirects its cash flow to maintenance capex or to growth capex. And we say, what would uh, what would a competent management team do in this instance with these cash flows? They'd buy back some stock, they'd pay down some debt, they might buy a struggling competitor, and. And then we make that assessment on those two things together. So we think like an acquirer and that's the idea, but we're only buying part of the businesses. And the, the reason is that in a negotiated transaction, the, the vendor, the seller will always get a, an acquisition premium. Like otherwise you just don't sell. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that we can go in and we don't have to pay that acquisition premium. We can find these things that are trading for much less than they're worth to somebody else or to a competent management team. Most of the time, these businesses, you know, the industry all gets cheap at the same time. It's nothing that really that the management can do, but you can look through and see who's been doing sensible things while this business has been in a trough, who's been buying back stock, who had the liquidity to buy back stock, who sort of foresaw that this business could cycle, husbanded some capital through the good times to use in the bad times. And you're looking for these management teams that, They've thought ahead and they're executing on it as it's undervalued. And so that's, that's basically the approach that we take. Oh, interesting. So in a nutshell, you would say that you are a deep value investor. Am I, and I'm just trying to wrap my, my brain around that's it because you're talking a lot about uh, different fundamental characteristics of a company. That's it. And you're not, you're not actually buying a company because when you were, you were speaking ahead of time, I was like, oh, so is he going out and buying like the, the, the company, right? He's putting his name on the side and saying, Carlisle Industries, number 18, right? No, <laughs> not the case. No, I, I'll tell you the reason. Why. It's a conscious decision. So when I started out part of M&A, just when I started in M&A, so I started, my first day of work was April 2000, which was the absolute peak of the dot-com boom. And I literally came into work and, you know, the first day sort of not really knowing what was going on. And saw everything just get devastated. And I had thought that what I was going in to do was like venture capital investment Mm -hmm. and tech because that was all super sexy at the time. And that all just went away. And it turned into a market where 
these guys appeared who were like corporate raiders from the 80s. And we didn't really have a name for them at the time. They became known as activists, but at the time, nobody called them activists. Like a team of like, Pickens type. Yeah. And they were that kind of age too. Like they were all older blokes who had just been kind of nowhere for about a decade because the market had been too expensive. And what they were doing was they were buying these dot-coms that were busted that had raised a whole lot of cash, but they had these businesses that were burning money, which, you know, when the market's going up, no one cares. When the market goes down, that becomes just toxic. No one will touch that. And so they would buy it knowing that they could shut down the business and just use the cash on the balance sheet to then either liquidate and get you know, a double or to buy other companies doing this. And so a few guys did this. It was absolutely fascinating. And I thought if this, if this market ever comes back around again where it crashes and these kind of sub-liquidation value companies become available, I will start investing in them. And it took a long time. It was sort of not until 2007, 2008, that they reappeared. So I stopped and I started working in this uh, activist. I stopped being a lawyer, started working in this activist firm where they were basically doing exactly that, looking for undervalued ca- uh, assets with a catalyst. And if they couldn't find the catalyst, they'd provide it. So that's kind of, that's, that's where the deep value philosophy comes from. Okay. Yeah, actually, um, I was thinking to myself while you're describing how, how you you use your, your analysis with this, like this probably isn't a, uh, a weekly turnaround type of event whenever you're uh, buying shares in different companies. You know, I'll say this, that it, the market is this remarkable discounting mechanism and it's forward looking. And so often when something comes into my screen, there are a lot of other guys who figured it out at the same time, because it's all met their criteria. And so it's striking the number of times that you start buying and it really does start running almost immediately. Having said that, we have gone through this period where my particular investment style has been out of fashion for the longest period of time ever in the data. So I have a a guy I interviewed on my podcast, uh, Mikhail Samanov. He's done this analysis where he's, he's gone back and he's looked at so we have the, the, the data that we have, the fundamental data that we have at the moment is called the French data set from Famer and French, who did this sort of iconic work that came out in 1994 about what drove stock prices. And one of the things that they identified was value. Um, they also de- identified size and a few other things in there as, as sort of factors that, that drive stock prices. That French data set starts in 1925. Then there was this thing called the Cowles Commission, where uh, this guy, Alfred Cowles, was interested to know if there were any investors who had skill. And so he put this stuff all on punch cards and it started in 1875, ran through to 1925. And that was the thing that Benjamin Graham, who's sort of the father of value investing, he looked at that. He did this study of that stuff and he said, well, so Cowles Cowles said nobody has, Cowles got all of these investment newsletters and he said, nobody has any investment skill. Then Graham went and looked at it and he said, you know what, there is this thing in here where, things that are undervalued on their assets on a price-to-book value basis do generate these unusual returns. And that was why uh, Graham kind of became a value guy, wrote security analysis, and, and you know he was Warren Buffett's teacher, which is how Buffett becomes a value investor. So even before that data set, though, you can go back to 1825, which is like, basically, that's the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the States. So you have steamships, Commodore Vanderbilt um, starts the first uh, train line. Um, for, for the first time, it's sort of mechanical stuff driving industry in the States in 1825. And some of these companies were public 
and they had, um, you know, there was very little data in the reports that they would provide, but they did, you know, so you didn't have a balance sheet, didn't have like an income state, like none of that stuff kind of existed, but they did pay dividends. So they could look at the quoted prices and the dividends and say, this thing is a value stock or not a value stock on the basis of its dividend. It's imperfect, but it's better than nothing. So Mikhail Samanov stitched together these three data sets, which go back 200 years. And basically the last 10 years has been the worst ever for, for this strategy. <laughs> But having said that, it looks like it might have bottomed sort of somewhere over the last six months. So we've been having some a, a pretty good run recently, particularly in small and micro. Um, but I, I I expect that that will expand into um, mid and large cap. Uh, you know, basically, it's it's probably already started or any time around here. Hmm. So, what I mean, you you've talked a lot about your your buy criteria. What's your sell criteria? It's one of the most difficult things to kind of to come up with. Um, and there's really, no one really does it particularly well. And this is the problem that value guys have is that, you know, you have some idea of the intrinsic value of this thing that you own. And once it goes through the intrinsic value, at that point, you should probably be a seller and you're looking for the next undervalued thing to put in. And that's sort of, as something goes from undervalued to appropriately valued or a little bit expensive, that's how you're generating the return and you're trying to recycle that as you're going. That's, that's how value investing works. Mm-hmm. Uh, often value guys, when they sell, you know, they're selling very early because these things, you know, there are other phenomena in the market. There's momentum is a real thing. If something starts performing, the momentum investors will come in and that will continue to perform for a period of time afterwards. And so value guys always seem to miss the kind of the tail end or the ball run which is why we sort of haven't done that well over the last period of time, because this has been an extremely bullish market where hard to find cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. And then right. you're not really participating with like this cheap stuff just doesn't get bid definitionally. You know, there's really no good answer to it. The way that I solve the problem is I just have a regular rebalancing of the fund. And so when things go up, we rebal of the two funds, we rebalance back to um, equal weight. And then if it leaves the screen, it gets rebalanced out. One of the nice things about ETFs is they don't have capital gains tax implications. So my decisions as a manager don't become capital gains in the hands of the investors. The ETFs can use this custom create redeem function to get rid of the capital gains. So it's not like a mutual fund or a managed account or a hedge fund where you're getting a big tax whack every single year. You, you Basically, your tax is where you buy it and where you sell it. And it's the the gain in between. So it's it's a it's the perfect vehicle for something like a rebalancing, deep value rebalancing strategy that sort of relies on that mean reversion mechanic of buying stuff cheap, selling it when it gets expensive, and rebalancing the whole way through. Okay. So you brought it up. So I have I have many questions to ask at this point. So when I think of an ETF, basically for me as an investor, retail retail investor, it's you know, SPY is trading at 390. I'm gonna buy it today or uh, XLP, Consumer Staples ETF, is trading at $54, I'm gonna buy it today. What goes into the back end? Because you you are the back end, essentially, on Deep and on Zig. And That's right. uh, I mean, there, there's a whole world of, of information that I have no idea is out there. So an exchange traded fund, but they were first created um, to give people exposure to sort of thematic 
um, ideas. So uh, you want exposure to volatility. You can buy a VIX ETF, which you know it, it might have some combination of futures and options or, or however they're expressing it. If you want exposure to the S&P 500 index, then you buy SPY and they track the S&P 500 index. And so the S&P 500 index is a market capitalization weighted float adjusted index of the largest 500 stocks. It's not actually the largest 500. It's reconstituted by a committee once a year. They sit down and decide what goes in and out. And then the weightings of the companies that they decide are in it are based on how big the company is and how much of the shares are traded and are not held by the the person who started the business or some big concentrated management team. That's the free float. So for a variety of reasons, that's a very difficult strategy to beat. But for a variety of reasons, you know, we, we know that there are factors that work. We know value works. We know momentum works. We know equal weighting a portfolio will beat a market capitalization weighted float adjusted portfolio. And so there are lots of different expressions of this, but the way that most people think about ETFs is as this thematic expression. There aren't very many sort of active management strategies embedded in ETFs, but there's no reason why they can't be. So I'm not, I'm not thematic. What I am is it's a strategy and it's, I describe the strategy in some books. So I've written uh, the one that came out most recently was in 2017. It's called The Acquirer's Multiple. It basically, it's written to a fifth grade reading level, costs about 10 bucks. You can read it in two hours. And it describes in very simple terms what my philosophy is as it's executed in these books. So you could read that book. It's just on Amazon. It's available in any of those sort of places. You can read that book, understand what I'm going to be doing. And then you can either... You can go to my website, Acquirers Multiple, and there's a screen. You can sort of see all the stocks we're going to buy. Or you can just, if that's too hard, because you'll find that the rebalancing is a nightmare. It's very hard to kind of buy and sell all this stuff on a regular basis. And you're going to be taxable probably in your own account. So you just use my ETFs to sort of execute. You think my small and micro value is really undervalued. And that's been, small and micro value got to its highest, its widest level of overvaluation Um late last year and it's had a big run since then that sort of helped it catch up some of that undervaluation still very undervalued likely years and years for that to keep on going true also of the of the larger cap but it's a strategy rather than a thematic etf so you could you could be looking for you know you want exposure to oil you want exposure to gold you want exposure to silver you do that through an etf you might also say i want exposure to deep value because I know deep value is really beaten up and the time when deep value works is sort of out of the bottom of a crash and early on in the bull run to sort of the mid late point of the bull run, not the very tail end. And you say, well, we had a big crash last year. We've probably got a few years of value working really well here. I can execute and I like this strategy. I can execute that through the two ETFs. Yeah. So I, the reason I ask is, I mean, like I say, it's a total, total black hole to me. So I pulled up deep on my uh, my charting platform here, and it's around $33 right now. How much of what you do goes into the current share price and how much of the current share price is dominated by um, market participants? Yeah, so an ETF, this is one of the nice things about an ETF. So you can have an ETF is has the, both the characteristics of a closed-end fund in the sense that... Um, 
I don't have to manage the flows. That's that's managed by uh, lead market makers, and there are some other market participants that stand between my advisory firm and the end shareholder. And um, the, but the pro, you know the problem with the closed end fund. If you this is a kind of a this is a strategy that deep value guys will use on occasion. You can find a deep you can find a closed end fund that trades at a big discount to its net asset value, just because they get too bombed out. People don't want to be any there anymore. They just get tired of it. They sell out, and all of a sudden, even though the, the assets are very depressed, the price of those assets is further depre- depressed in the in the closed end fund. So you can buy it, and you can either arbitrage it by shorting out what you've got. The, the constituents of that closed-in fund, or you just buy it and just sort of sit there knowing that it's all going to appreciate again. That doesn't happen in an ETF because they're these lead market makers and market makers who have this function. They keep the, they're incentivized to keep the NAV close to the market price. So the market price is a reflection of the underlying performance of the ETF rather than market participants buying and selling the stock. So they do sort of move it around a little bit at the at the edges, but there's also a market maker there who keeps it close to the NAV. And when it gets out of whack, and this is one of the things we have to track when it gets too far out of whack, they have to bid it back into close to the NAV. Okay. Okay. So let me let me try and wrap my brain around this. So so your basket of of investments the NAV would be roughly around $33. And then it's the, it. the market maker's objective to keep it as close to that as possible. Right. They huh, set okay. a bid and ask around the NAV. And so huh. when you're trading, you're trading around the NAV. So you could go to a website like Morningstar and you can pull up my ETFs on Morningstar and you can see that it's called the IOPV, um, which is basically the NAV. And you can see if you get the quote, to the right-hand side, just above the quote, it gives you the IOPV, which is the underlying sort of net asset value of it. And as the IOPV moves through the day, the the share price will move with the IOPV as there are trades around it. So, because these are smaller ETFs, they just they don't have the liquidity of a spy, which trades billions of dollars a day, and it's always right. very close to its IOPV. They, it can be a little bit wider, but um, you know, that's just when they get started, it takes a little while for them to sort of get enough volume in them and, and, and that will sort itself out over time. No, that, that, that was something that I was very curious about. I mean, recently I, I've been digging through several uh, ETFs, like I mentioned XLP earlier and pulling out the, conti- the constituents of uh, XLP, including like Coca-Cola, Colgate, um, you know, all, all the uh, Procter & Gamble, things like that. And I was like, I wonder how the price of XLP, the basket is determined from all the apples inside the basket, I guess you could say. So yeah, that just describes that's, it. That's exactly how it is. And okay. the, the nice thing from a manager's perspective, so one of the difficulties that a manager in a closed-end fund or a mutual fund or a hedge fund, one of the problems that they have is if they raise money, they have that comes in as cash that they have to redeploy, which is a challenge when you're going, either the market's going up very quickly or the market's going very down down very quickly and the reverse is happening. You've got to sell stuff to meet redemptions. The nice thing about an ETF is that I don't do any of that stuff. The way that the ETF grows is that the market maker puts out, uh, it's called a create order and they tell other market makers basically at HF, uh, high frequency trading funds that they want to create this basket. So what they do is they go and recreate the portfolio and then they exchange that for units in the ETF and they get either a bounty, which might be 1500 bucks or something like that, or they get a little bit of an arbitrage because 
they can put together the portfolio cheaper because HFT costs them virtually nothing. They're sort of inside the spread all the time. And so they're getting either the spread or a bounty or both. And that's why they're incentivized to recreate it, which is why it sort of all keeps nice and tight to the, to the NAV. And I don't have to worry about the flows as a manager, which is a, which is a, you know, a nightmare if you're a, if you're a mutual fund or hedge yeah, fund. So, so, so are you saying that if, if I were to go out and buy deep at $33, that my $33 doesn't make it to your fund for other investments. It actually gets split up along the way. So there's only when there's a create. So what's, what's happening is that the, the market maker is long or short units of the fund. And that when you're trading, often it's them on the other side. So there's the, an ETF, no matter how illiquid the ETF looks on, basis of, on the basis of like trades that have gone through, an ETF is always as liquid as it's underlying. So if you're in a, in a large cap ETF, it's, it's probably very, very liquid. And what you're, you're, you may be trading with the market maker on the other side, or you may be trading with someone who's buying or selling on the other side. But if, if it's the market maker, they've already got inventory that they will sell to you and they sell down to zero. And once they've sold out all of their inventory and they may go short a little bit too, they will then put out the create order to have the basket recreated and that will get them back into positive inventory. So they will hold units of the fund, you know, as few as they possibly can It's because they don't want to be exposed to the, mm-hmm. to the movements of the fund. They, they make their money through the arbitrage and, and selling, the, selling the stock. So you don't know who's on the other side, but often it's another, you know, big liquid fund like SPY, it's probably someone else yeah. on the other side. Smaller let's, funds like let's say I wanted to maker. Let's say I wanted to invest in you and the acquirer's fund. It, can I do that? Because it sounds like I cannot. Like you, you were saying, you, it's you, like a closed fund. It has b- the characteristics of both a closed-end fund and an open-ended fund. It's just that there's a market maker who stands in the middle. So when the money comes in, the market maker will sell down the inventory and then they will issue a create order and they will have more inventory. And that money goes into the fund when they create. So I get creates once every couple of weeks or so, okay, okay, which is money okay. going into the fund. Gotcha. That's, that's what I was wondering right there. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So, so let me ask you this. What, at this point in your career, you've obviously learned a lot, had a lot of lessons, a lot of experiences along the way. What's a, what's your favorite failure? I guess this is a good way to put it, right? Well, I mean, we all have things that we've learned from and said, oh, I'm so glad I learned this because it helped me along the line do that. What's your favorite failure? There are many, and there are different. Uh, there are different levels. There are failures that inform the strategy, and there are failures that inform the structure that I use to implement that strategy. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think you have a long enough podcast to go through all the <laughs> failures that that I have had. But at a strategy level, let's talk about that. So, the the biggest problem for value guys, I think, is just getting too impatient or drifting a little bit. So I have a strategy that works, but the nature of the strategy is that it has these, uh, um, it sort of drifts around for a little while until you get uh, somebody doing something. So one of the companies gets bought out or they decide to turn it around. And when that happens, you get a day of big gains and then it will just sort of drift around again. So if you, if you imagine a strategy that has these sort of, uh, it's like idiosyncratic performance and um, that performance, you never really know when it's going to come in. If you just get tired, it's like this happens. I've done this so many times now that I've basically fixed the strategy so I can't make this decision myself because I know that I will make this 
decision the wrong way. So I, I've just taken that out of my hands completely. But basically, I just, I've sat in this stock for two years. It hasn't done anything. I just get tired or bored or impatient and I get out and literally days, weeks, months later, it gets the pop that I've been waiting for. And I just think if I just held on for just that, if I'd just been a little bit more patient, I wouldn't have missed that one. So that's the big one in the strategy. In the structure, you know, the problem for anybody in a taxable account in a mutual fund or a separately managed account or a hedge fund is tax. If you go back, if you do these calculations and work out how much alpha there is in eliminating tax in your investing strategy, basically that's the first thing you should go and fix. Short-term capital gains are monstrous. You have to avoid short-term capital gains if you possibly can. If you work out, so short-term capital gains uh, in a taxable account, you need to be returning something north of 40% a year as compared to a buy and hold strategy that has no tax friction at about 15% a year. That's how big the arbitrage is wow. in the tax. And if you can convert them to long-term capital gains, then it comes in around 20% a year, which is still, that's an extraordinarily high return. What the ETF does is it eliminates that. So it gives you both the best of both worlds. It gives you the, I can trade short-term capital gains and there's no capital gains tax impact. It's like a holding, it's like a long-term holding for the for the ultimate shareholder. So that's, that was the thing that it's incredibly you know, rare to find a vehicle like that, that is a trading vehicle that allows you to have the uh, long-term capital gains or no capital gains if you just continue to hold. And that's what we've achieved in, in these, this, these strategies in this, in this wrapper. Hmm. Wow. That's really interesting. So you mentioned your books and one of my questions was like, what are some of the best resources to help people along the way? Tell me more about your books. I, um, I'm Australian. I don't have a background really in investing um, that, you know, I don't have a, an association with a big name brand fund. So I needed to demonstrate um, sort of mastery of the subject. And the way that I achieved that was by doing these various books. The first one was sort of a heavy research focused quasi textbook on fundamental investing. And that's Quantitative Value, which came out in 2012. And then the next one was more specific to my own strategy, which is called Deep Value, came out in 2014. And that discusses activists and private equity firms and how the ecosystem works to create mean reversion and why you, know, you want to buy companies that are beaten down and at the bottom of a business cycle because you know, they're, they're, the cycle turns and, and you get these silly returns for a while in in garbage companies. And I think it's been a really long time since we've seen that happen, but it's definitely the last sort of 12 months has been a pretty good example of what the power of that strategy when, when it turns, it's, it's a very violent turn. And I think that we'll go back now to, to a strategy like that. But basically I, that book came out in 2014 and it hasn't really done much since 2014. It sort of took until late last year for it to, to start showing. Then I wrote a book called Concentrated Investing, just because I was interested in who are some guys who've been doing this for like 25 years plus who have had these very concentrated portfolios because the more concentrated your portfolio, it's sort of the more you're going to get a pure expression of the strategy, but also the more likely you are to blow up. So anybody who's done it for an extended period of time and not blown up, I want to know what they do 
to keep themselves traveling along. So we interviewed Charlie Munger, Liz Simpson, who ran Berkshire's insurance. We interviewed uh, the guy who's a Christian CM. He's known as the Nordic uh, Warren Buffett. He's like an oil and gas guy. Um, uh, Glenn Greenwald from Brave Warrior. Now, or used to be Chieftain. He's kind of a quality value guy and a few other guys like that. And I, I took all those lessons and, um, and I've implemented them as well. And then most recently, I wrote a book called Acquire as Multiple, which is just a very simple book for, because I just, I, I talked to my mum and dad, they're not stock market people. And they just said, I can't understand any mm-hmm. of your books. So I wrote one specifically for people who, they might be interested and they might be smart, but they're not, they just don't know all the terms. They don't know the lingo. They want to just sort of explain it to me like I'm five years old. So that's what yeah. I did. I wrote it so you can understand it. And it's a book that my kids could read and kind of understand. Gotcha. So you mentioned garbage companies and how there's been like a uh, resurgence in value of them. Of course, my mind is going to the 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 meme stocks right now, the GameStops, the AMCs, the what, what else was there like BlackBerry? I mean, I traded AMC for fun whenever uh, all that was exploding. And um, I got in around five-ish dollars. No, I think it was in the $4 range. And then the next day it was up like 24%. I'm like, this is fun. And just let it play out for a little while. I managed to get out about double my money, which, you know, basically just pure luck playing on that. Um, But there seems to be something to the quote garbage company line right now, especially with, uh, you know, the the, uh, Wall Street bets community in the least. I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there who aren't looking at it as quote deep value. They're looking at it like um, YOLO calls. Right. So, right. so tell me what, what's your, what's your opinion on this? Cause this is well, here, something interesting in the market right now. Here's the funny things. GameStop, you know, Viacom, a lot of these companies that have had this monster run, they came out of, they were all in my screen a few years ago and I was talking about them a few years ago and people were laughing at me and you can have a look at this on Twitter saying, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. And then when Michael Burry, who was the board guy who they made the movie about, he bought GameStop a little bit after I did. And I said something like, you know, maybe Burry's still got it. And you can just see the absolute derision directed at me on Twitter after that. And then subsequently, you know, he had a good little run and I said, clearly he's still got it. People hate that idea. And then it kind of came back a little bit and, uh, you know, cheering because but. Burry don't got it no more. And then, you know, now it's had this monster run again. So this is sort of what happens in, in deep value. You just the, the, we know it's a bad business. We know it's not a great business. I'm not out here trying to tell anybody that GameStop or whatever the company might be is this incredible business. I know that um, people aren't going to be buying physical computer games in a GameStop store because they can download them and that's much more convenient and cheaper for everybody. We all know that. The thing that I'm pointing to when I'm saying this thing is undervalued is they've got more cash at the time. They've got more cash than market capitalization. What I'm saying is this thing is trading for less than the cash that it's got. They've got some lease liabilities, but then the, 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 uh, the Chewy guy came in um, with an idea to kind of turn it around. All of a sudden, it caught some attention the tech stocks had softened up a little bit. And so Wall Street bets picked up on the idea and it went and it took off. You know, we, 
I, I get out before any of the really fun stuff happens, of course. So I miss out on all of the explosive stuff right at the end. But, you know, that's the nature of being a value guy. You, you're kind of early and idiotic and then it works and you're out before the fireworks all happen. So I just sort of quietly get in, get out. And that's that's basically what Deep and Zig both do. Just when it's really beaten up and cheap on the basis of the balance sheet or a busted business, we go in, take a position. When it moves up and it's sort of fairly valued, you know, now it's 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 still a garbage business. I'm not out here telling anybody that it's a great business. We get out then and uh, the market takes you know what? I, I think that I think we should have led with that because now I have a much better perspective on the type of companies that you invest in. Okay. Well, cool. I got to tell you, this has been exceptionally eye-opening here, Tobias. So, so your two funds, let's talk about them again, are Deep and Zig. Your podcast is the Acquirers Podcast. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. So there's two. There's two. I do this one with just two buddies of mine who I've known for a long time who are value guys, and we just sort of talk about all of the silliness that we see in the market. It's very casual. That's called value after hours. And then I have mm-hmm. a more formal interview one where I talk to other value managers about their strategy because there are so many value strategies. There are as many value strategies as there are value investors. There are, you know, there are franchise value guys. There are arbitrage guys, there are special sits guys, there are you know, guys who are just front running mergers, there are guys who are buying high quality companies, there are guys who are buying busted companies and I want to get an idea of the flavor of what they do and then you know, if the idea is good enough, I'll steal it. <laughs> what? Oh man, I, I don't remember the quote off, off my head. Maybe you know it, but it's something like um, the, uh, the most successful people like steal each other's ideas. I don't know. I don't, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but it's something like that. It's not copy. It's not stealing. It's uh, it's emulating or something like that. It's yeah. like uh, bad artists copy, great artists steal, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. This is not a quote show, so I totally bombed on that one. <laughs> you can look it up yourself. Just Google it. Yeah, just Google it, people. Come on. No, this has been really good. Um, especially now, I have a much greater understanding about what you do how a fund works because literally had no idea whatsoever and um you know more about where people can learn more about uh from your books and everything especially sounds like maybe starting with your most recent one the acquirers yeah i think that's right that's the way to do it I, i just say this it's been this has been an unusual market for folks who haven't been in the market for a long time the last 12 months have been extremely unusual and the the 10 years before that were also an unusual period in the market. And the, what, what makes it unusual is that these very high growth tech stocks have massively outperformed. And that is a rare thing in the market. If you've just come in and you've only been here for the last 10 years, which is a long period of time, you might think that it, it, it makes total sense that the highest growing, sexiest businesses are the ones that are going to make the most money. But the research tells us that that's not the case. What, what drives returns in the market are a number of factors. And one of them is value, which is deep undervaluation. The difference in the returns, and I, I discussed this somewhat in the book, is, uh, is, is kind of astounding. And so it's worth, I encourage people, to, if you take a look at that book, it's 10 bucks on the Kindle and look at the difference between the two returns. And I think that you'll sort of understand why I prefer to traffic in these unsexy, busted little businesses. <laughs> They don't want you calling them that, but nobody's going to know. <laughs> the returns are sexy. Yes, there you go. Exactly. Well, Tobias, this has been a really, really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for going through all of it like you have today. 
My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Good, good. And thank you guys for tuning in to today's How to Trade Stocks Options podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, and enable notifications. That way you never miss any of the tools, tips, and tricks that we upload every single week to help you trade faster and trade smarter. And I'll see you on the next episode. Okay, so what'd you think? That was pretty incredible, right? Now, if you like that, that's only a taste, only a sample of what you're going to find in the full AI stock trading system. And I really highly encourage you to go and check this out. Obviously, you are interested in learning and how to trade, and that's why you're listening to this podcast. Now, I'm going to take and download my entire trading system that I use day in and day out onto you. <laughs> and the only way I'm going to be able to do that is over at the AIStockTradingSystem.com. You're going to get phase one, two, and three, several bonuses. And on top of that, I'm going to walk you through over a dozen trades that I put on inside of my account, holding your hand and showing you exactly how I got in, how I got out, how I use the artificial intelligence data, and how this could work inside of your own trading portfolio on a daily basis. So make sure you head on over to AIStockTradingSystem.com. That's AIStockTradingSystem.com to learn more and to get started and to download my decade plus worth of trading experience into your hands so you can start using the AI Stock Trading System today, the five-step system to take the guesswork out of trading. Hey, if you like this video, let me know by leaving me a like below and then subscribe and share it with somebody you think could use it as well. Be sure to comment below with your biggest takeaway from this episode and any suggestions you have for future episodes. And finally, make sure you watch these other videos to help you trade faster and trade smarter. And I'll see you on the next episode. 10MinuteStockTrader.com content is for information and educational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, trading or investment advice or recommendation that any security, futures contract, options contract, transaction, or other financial instrument or strategy is suitable for any person. Trading securities can involve high risk and the potential for total loss of any funds invested. 10MinuteStockTrader.com and Christopher Ewell, through its content, financial programming, or otherwise, does not provide investment or financial advice or make investment recommendations. Investment information provided may not be suitable for all investors and is provided without respect to the individual investors and audience's financial sophistication, financial situation, investing time horizon, or risk tolerance. TimMinuteStockTrader.com and Christopher Ewell are not in the business of trading securities trades, nor does it direct client commodity accounts or give commodity trading advice tailored to any particular client situation or investment objectives. TimMinuteStockTrader.com and Christopher Ewell are not licensed financial advisors, registered investment advisors, or registered broker-dealers. Stocks, options, futures, futures options, and other financial instruments not included here involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. You alone are responsible for making your investment and financial trading decisions and for evaluating the merits and risks associated with the use of any financial security and broker platform. For more information, please visit TimMinuteStockTrader.com legal. And thanks for stopping by.